So when I was a kid, I was a part of multiple weddings, and I don't know that I really had a choice in it, because it was when you're little, right, like the ring bearer kind of thing. Um, and in fact, my mom bought me a suit for the first few weddings I was in, and um, I was what you would call a husky child, and so I wore that same suit for three years. They just kept letting out the legs every year, like that's what happened. And um, I remember being in a wedding when I was seven. It was my aunt's wedding. And I distinctly remember this wedding because my mom did a ton. My mom was kind of like a surrogate mom for her sister. She was the oldest. My sister was the baby, or my aunt was the baby. And so she, she just did a ton to kind of help with the wedding. Like she took a, take, a cake decorating class. And so she made the cake, and she decorated the cake, and she made all the mints, and she got all the nuts, and she did a ton of stuff for my aunt's wedding. And I remember the night before, she was up till, I don't know, 2 or 3 in the morning. I was up till way later than I should have been as a 7-year-old. Uh, but the next day, I was in my tux because I was supposed to wear one for this wedding. And I remember my aunt gave me one rule for her wedding. Do not drink punch before pictures. <laughs> well, I was seven. And I thought I could sneak to the gym where the punch was, have a cup of punch, come back for pictures. And I did. And I thought no one would be the wiser. Except... You know, like, uh, when you drink red drinks and you're a kid and you get the extra little, like, joker face going on, like, um, that was what I had. So in almost all the pictures of my aunt's wedding, um, you can tell I wouldn't had red punch. But I was thinking about weddings and how, how sometimes they're, they're, like, weird and there's, sometimes they're good, but they're really an everyday thing. But our son, unfortunately, he knows they're an everyday thing because he was in at least nine of them. We counted the other this week, and so Isaac was involved in a wedding as a ring bearer in some way, shape, or form at least nine times. And he was about 50-50 about whether or not he was going to make it down the aisle. Because, you know, it's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of people, and they're looking at you. And so I'll never forget, he was a part of uh, Katie's cousin's wedding in Pennsylvania, and it was on Penn State's campus at this kind of outdoor theater kind of place. And, and he was supposed to carry this sign and walk down the middle aisle. And I was kind of like up here over on the side, and he was supposed to come down and then come to me, and then we would go sit. And I look back, and he's holding his sign, and I see crocodile tears. And he is not having this. And so I slide around, I walk back, I grab his hand, we walk towards the car, we get in the car, we went to McDonald's and got a cheeseburger. So that's what we remember of that wedding. I'm sure it was great, but we went to McDonald's. But like weddings really are, other than for the bride and groom and the family who is there, um, they really are an everyday, ordinary thing. And I don't mean that as derogatory towards weddings. Millions of people get married every year. In fact, what we find is there's weddings happening around the world today. And so it's probably fitting in some way that an everyday, ordinary activity becomes the place where Jesus' first miracle took place. And John records it from John chapter 2. Here's what we find he records. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water 
that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. At first glance, you may be like, well, what's the big deal about this story? It's just a wedding feast, and Jesus was there. And, but maybe just maybe you caught the line where John said towards the end of that, this was the first of the signs that revealed his glory. There are seven times in the Gospel of John in which John records this idea that these are the signs of Jesus. And maybe you remember from the past few weeks, we've talked about this particular verse at the end of chapter 20, in which John says these things, right? He says that, that these have been written so that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and so that in him you can have life. And he goes on to say in that same text that if everything were recorded... It's been that Jesus had done, it would fill up more books and volumes than we'd have room to print, right? Like, that's the point he's trying to make. So what John is saying here, by using this idea that there are seven signs, there were more than seven miracles that Jesus was a participant in or a part of. But John is very particular in using seven as the way in which he's going to clarify that these are the signs that reveal the glory of God. And most of them, you'll find, are like life and death or some, you know, it's this idea that someone's going to come back from the dead or something like that. But this one is really an everyday, ordinary thing. It's different than all the rest. It's one of those things that happens in everyday life. And it, what it really does is it prevents someone from feeling and knowing shame. And this is the first miracle that Jesus does. He helps people stay away from sensing and knowing shame. And it begins with this, on the third day. And maybe just maybe when you hear that line as the text begins, something in your mind kind of jumps and you begin to think, hey, I wonder about. And so maybe, maybe, just maybe you thought about Genesis chapter 1 because that would be the third day, right? We talk about in that beginning, it's in the beginning I created, and then we get to the third day. And so Jews often got married on the third day, and here is why. The third day, by the way, it would be Tuesday. And they got married on Tuesday, and here's the reason. Because the Tuesday, or the third day in creation, is the only day in which God says twice it was good. So Tuesday was a day that was doubly good. So why would you not get married on the third day, the day that was doubly good? That's it. Like, that's the whole story. Like, there's nothing more to it than that. But Jews still to this day get married on Tuesday often because it's the day that's been doubly blessed by God. So why not have your marriage doubly blessed? Or maybe something else went off in your mind and that really wasn't it. But on the third day, you begin to think about this. Wasn't the third day the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Wasn't the third day the day in which God's new creation came? Wasn't the third day the day in which death was conquered by life? Wasn't the third day when new opportunities sprang forth? And so what John is doing here is he's connecting weddings and resurrection, creation and new life. He's painting this picture by reminding people that this happened on the third day. Now, in the Jewish ancient world, weddings were a significant event, not unlike today, but they were a significant event because you would bring people together and it would become a three-day celebration. And, you would, and if you were the bridegroom, you were the one responsible. I don't know when it shifted, but you were the one responsible for taking care of everything. And so they would take care of this wedding feast 
And so the way that would happen in that day, and maybe you notice today, like in our day, we have weddings, and, and so there's the ceremony, and then there's usually this like way too long of a gap that people are supposed to go find something to do before the reception. I mean, maybe I'm the only one that thinks that. Sorry if you got married recently and that was you. But there's this big gap so that people can get pictures and all this other kind of stuff has to happen in the middle of that. Um, and you're not sure what you're supposed to do. Like, do we go get snacks? Do we not get snacks? Are they going to come on time or late to the reception? Like, what time are we supposed to get there? Where is this? Like, right, this, is, this is not what happened in the Jewish ancient world. What happened there was this. You'd have the wedding ceremony, and then the bride and groom would go into a special tent. They didn't take pictures. They consummated their marriage. They got really married, and everybody waited outside. Yeah. And when they came back out, the festivities began. The celebration would start. And so they would come back out, and then that would be when they would begin to serve food, and the wine would be poured, and, and the celebration of the party would begin. And so you'd be just waiting out there, really awkward for the newlyweds. Anyway, um, I have all kinds of jokes I was going to make, but I'm not sure they're appropriate or not, so we'll leave them out. But, but it's this moment where they, they would have this new life, and so this celebration of marriage, this idea of this covenantal relationship, people coming together, and they would celebrate this, and people would be there for this three-day celebration. And I, I kind of picture in my mind that Jesus and his mom are there, just kind of enjoying the fellowship of all the people, and, and, and I just feel like they're kind of sitting off to the side, and they overhear those serving at the celebration, um, we're out of wine. There's no more. You're like, well, you know, should have bought more, or like, were they paid for drinking too much, or whatever it might be. But, but I want to clarify a couple of things about the Jewish custom of drinking wine. Um, first, it's important to note that wine was the wine they would drink would be two parts wine, three parts water. Okay, that's important to know. So it wasn't like just drinking like really strong wine. In fact, what you'd find is that drunkenness was considered sinful, but wine was considered essential. So the wine was an essential part of the celebration, but drunkenness was still considered a wrong thing to do. And so um, I was trying to think, how would I give some perspective to what it would be like to run out of wine in that day at a celebration like this? And I was thinking about my mom, right? I mentioned that she helped with my aunt's wedding, and then for my sister's wedding, she did a ton. And, and she um, is just the kind of person that is going to always have too much when there's a meal and you gather together. Um, I can only imagine how appalled she would have been at either one of those weddings if they had run out of stuff. Um, she was always the one who has more than enough for everything. Um, I mean, like if you, we go to her house to visit and she makes dinner even now with no one there but my dad. She makes dinner as if we all live at home. There were six of us, right? There were four kids growing up and, and our friends are coming over. And that's how much she cooks for. And so if you walk in their house right now, I, I guarantee it, and you open the refrigerator doors, it's filled to overflowing. And when she walks in our house and she sees our refrigerator, which is not filled to overflowing, I know she has a little panic attack inside because she's like, what if you ran out of food? Like, we won't. We'll be fine. I promise. Like, we're okay. But, but this is my mother. Like, she is just the, like, we're going to have enough food. We're never going to run out. People are going to be okay. And this is what she would want. She would be so, like, embarrassed to run out of something. In fact, she helped coordinate the, all the food for the 100th celebration of their church this year. And they, of course, had extra food. Go figure, right? Um, but that's the reality of who my mom is. She would want, she'd be embarrassed. She'd be ashamed. And so in a shame-based culture, the idea to run out of wine at this wedding would be so embarrassing. It'd be really hard to walk around that community. 
He'd be like, you didn't think enough of your son and his wife to do this? I can't believe, did you know that their wedding, they ran out of wine? Can you believe it? And so you would walk around town for a long time, maybe forever, and you would hear this because people would go, oh, they, they didn't care enough. They didn't plan enough. They didn't prepare enough. Can you imagine being them? And so I see Mary looking over her son and going, they have no more wine. Jesus, why don't you do something about it? And his first reaction, you're like, well, I read what he said. It doesn't sound very great, right? Uh, it sounds kind of harsh, like my time hasn't come, but he begins with a woman. And I was trying to think how I would articulate that in our day. Like, um, there's no way, by the way, I, I decided I can't come up with any context. Like, hey, woman, still sounds bad, right? Like, no matter how I do it, no matter the tone of my voice, it sounds awful. But here's the difference. In Jesus' day, the way we translate that word woman, like, we better to think of it in terms of, like, lady or woman towards, I have affection towards. It wasn't, like, a negative term the way we use it, right? That wasn't the same way. We just can't translate it very well. It'd be, like, a long sentence to say this one word. And so we say woman, and he says, my time has not yet come. But again, that's an idiom of his day as much as it is the reality. And so what he's saying to her is this person I care about, mom, I got this. I got this. I'll take care of it. So I love the illustration that Brian Zahn uses when he talks about this same passage. He uses this picture, and so I'll just kind of give you the same background. So let's say my wife and I were going to a movie. Let's say we get to the movie, we go to buy our tickets, and we walk up to the counter, and in front of us is this young, like, teenage couple, and we can overhear them going, I thought it was like the cheap day, only to find out it's not a cheap day, and they don't have enough money, and and they're going to be short, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And he's embarrassed because, and, and I hear this, and from behind, my wife goes, do you hear this? And I go, I got this. And I slip a $10 bill to cover the difference, and they're fine, and they buy their tickets, and they go on. Right? I didn't need to make a big deal about it. I didn't need to do anything dramatic, but I can, I can take care of this. No big deal. I got this. This is what Jesus is doing and what he's saying to his mom. I, I got this. And I love his mother's response. She looks, and she goes, well, um, just do whatever he tells you. And so I see this kind of huddle over here, all the festivities over here, and Jesus hanging out with those who are serving at this wedding feast. And, and he looks over, and he sees these six stone water jars. And these stone water jars are the hold between 20 and 30 gallons. And, and he looks at them, and, and you should know what they're used for. They're used to fill the, the ceremonial baptistries that are all around the temple area and all around the Jewish world. And you would dump the water into the baptistries, and at least three times a week you would go to be ritually cleansed so that you could be in right relationship to worship God. You would do this outward washing of your body. Sometimes I mentally symbolically wash your hands or your feet or whatever, but, but you would dump them into the baptistry baths, and you would go into them, and you'd be clean, and you'd come out. It was a ceremonial washing. And that's what these six stone water jars were used for. And so Jesus tells them to fill these six stone water jars and he says to fill them, and so you can start to do math, You're like, well, how much would that weigh? That's a lot of weight, right? Like, how much does the jar weigh? I don't know. And, I, and I'll tell you this. I know a gallon of milk weighs nine pounds. And you're like, how do you know a gallon of milk weighs nine pounds? No, I did not Google it. Have you ever seen guys at the grocery store? And you know how when they like, do you need a cart? No. <laughs> I don't need a cart. I'm going to carry two gallons in one hand and every other bag in the other, and I'm going to walk out, and you're going to nod at the other guy's like, yep, I got it. Don't worry. It's taken care of. I don't need a cart. 
I mean, you've got cuts in your hand when you get to your car and your arm's about to fall off, but you're good, right? So I was impressed with myself one day after a grocery trip and I decided I want to know what I was carrying. And so I went home and I put the milk on the scale. It weighs nine pounds. There you go. You can do the math at 20 to 30 gallons. It's a pretty substantial weight, 200 pounds or more. And they are filled to the brim. Before we go back to the story and what happens next in the story, you can't miss, you and I can't miss the symbolism of what just happened in this moment. See, John wants to make sure we know, and Jesus was making it clear in this moment, that take these six jars that are used for ritual cleansing, right? This idea that you would keep going over and over again to be cleansed. And this idea that six all throughout the scriptures is the number of incompletion. It is never enough. And so the idea is this, that no matter how much you keep going back to those ritual baths, they will never be enough to cleanse you. They will never be enough to take away your shame. They will never be enough to make all the things in your life right. They will never be enough for you to be in right relationship with God. You cannot do it. So we go back to the wedding feast and the servant takes a cup and he fills it and he takes it to the party host and he gives him it and takes a drink of it and he looks at the, the bridegroom and he goes, oh, man, you saved the best for last. No one does this. Everyone gives the best stuff first and hopes their taste buds are, are like not worth it anymore and, and they don't taste it. The bad stuff came at the end. Like they give the best stuff at the beginning. You have saved the best for last. And isn't that so much like the character of Jesus? we feel like something is not enough, we feel like we have nothing left to give or we've given all that we have and we didn't even think something was possible, he does something extraordinary out of what seems really ordinary. Something ordinary, water, turns into something extraordinary, wine. It's a miracle, right? We talked about, John said, these are signs. And it's a reminder that God takes some things that are insignificant and he can make them significant. Things that we thought we're not really worth much become something greater than we could have ever imagined. And the text says that this revealed his glory to his disciples and they believed in him. It also reveals to us the beauty of Jesus. And I don't mean like the beauty like we see on magazine covers that have been edited. I mean the kind of beauty that like when an artist creates some type of art and you look at it and you're mesmerized because of the beauty of what you see before you. This is what Jesus reveals in this moment. His beauty. This says like, ah, you're looking for all these kind of things, but this is the kind of beauty that leaves us breathless. That we don't have words to articulate or to express what we see. This idea that this is the character of God. This is who God is in the world. He does things that seem impossible that leave us scratching our heads, breathless, mesmerized by taking the ordinary, everyday activities of life, a wedding, and doing something miraculous, turning water to wine, right? It's a pretty cool trick. I can't do it. You can't do it. But there's a few things that kind of jump out that maybe we could learn from this text. One, um, everyday life matters to God. What you and I do day in and day out is significant to God. He cares. It matters to him. Jesus models that for us in the way he lives his life and the way he goes about stuff. And even here in this first miracle, we also learn this. We should be a part of celebrations if we are followers of Jesus. He was. 
Right? I know I jokingly basically made myself a party pooper when the idea that I hate all that time between the ceremony and the reception. Like, fair. Still don't love it. But we should be people who are lining up to offer celebration, to celebrate great things in the lives of others. We should be that kind of people. Anything less than that is not really living like Jesus. Our everyday life is filled with moments that God may do something miraculous. Some of you could tell stories about just going through your everyday life and something happened. You're like, I don't know how to describe this other than God showed up and he did something I didn't even know could happen. Everyday moments of life can become extraordinary. Our everyday life is filled with moments that God does those miraculous things. And if we're not looking for them, we sometimes miss them. I was thinking how um, so many times we see the miracles of Jesus and they are about life or death and these kind of things. And, and for us in those moments, what, what if, what if it's not about life and death, but it's just about being there in the everyday? What if that becomes a moment of extraordinary thing where God shows up because we begin to recognize the same thing that he does? That God sees the beauty in the world around us, and so should we. Do you only see the beauty in the everyday life of others? Do we see the beauty in the way in which people live life around us? Do we see the beauty in others and the way we look at them and love them? Do we care for them in that way? Are we the kind of people who recognize that we think it needs to be what's ever on the cover of a magazine instead? And then one of the coolest things is God takes the ordinary things and he makes them extraordinary. Ordinary, everyday moments become things that are extraordinary. And those are all good and true, and those are things that I think matter, but there's something else in this story that I think if we miss it, we miss maybe the most important thing. It's this. That Jesus models for us that sometimes we live in a world of scarcity, but we serve a God of abundance. And here's what I mean by this. Um, We've probably noticed that most of us have bought into, or we know people who buy into the idea of scarcity. And here's what some examples of that. Like we never have enough money, we never have enough stuff, right? We are even sometimes concerned about there's not enough spaces for our kids, and so we hope their kid doesn't do as well so our kid can do better, right? So that I have a spot on the team or the band or whatever it might be. That's scarcity mindset. If you're like, well, I don't know about that, well... Um, do you remember when kind of COVID first happened and you couldn't buy toilet paper or cleaning supplies? I mean, I never knew toilet paper could be something sold on the black market. Um, and I think you could have made money on it. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, what we find is this picture again and again of this idea that, that God's blessing is seen in his abundance, right? So the idea that you would have vineyards that are overflowing with grapes, the idea that the wine would be overflowing like a river, these pictures of God's abundance, and it was to represent his blessing. And the opposite of that, like if your vineyard didn't produce any fruit, if you had no wine, it was considered this idea that you had not been blessed. You were living into the idea of scarcity. And so what's Jesus doing this miracle? He produces at least 150 gallons of wine. That's a big celebration. It's more than enough for those who've gathered at the wedding feast. It's an abundance. It's way more than you could ever need. These six full jars of water that become wine is more than enough for those who've gathered there. Remember, right, we talked about this number that's significant, this number six in this beginning, and, and maybe you know your scriptures well, and you can Harken back to the story in 1 Kings in which 
every year Solomon's gold weighs 666 talents of gold. Now maybe he's got like some kind of like perfect interest rate and he gets the same amount every year. Highly unlikely. Pretty sure the author is trying to make a point because numbers did matter in Jewish understanding. What he's saying is this, no matter how much gold Solomon had, and he had a lot, and every year he got more and more and more, but every year it was never enough. It was never enough. No matter how much he received, it was never enough to satisfy. It was insatiable desire for more because he was trying to fill his life with all the wrong things. Because here's the reality, when scarcity is what you believe in, you can never have abundance. When scarcity is what you believe in, you can never have abundance because our God is a God of abundance. It's more than enough. And when you buy into scarcity, you can never live in right relationship with God. You can never be made right because I always have to do more or get more or be more. And so if you live in a shame culture, which would have been the Jewish world, and for some of us, like maybe we, maybe we feel shameful often. In a shame culture, you can repeat the same rituals again and again and again and again. It's never going to be enough. You can keep going to the waters for ritual cleansing, and you're never going to feel clean. You can keep going and do those same things over and over again because you're asking the same question. How could I ever be clean enough before God? How could I do enough to be right before him? And what Jesus says in this text is this. There is no way you can go to the water enough to be clean. But I will take your shame, your filth, your brokenness, your sinfulness, and I will heal you, and I will restore you, and I will make you enough. And I will take you from the place where you feel like you could never be enough to a place where you know you are more than enough. I will so transform you that you no longer have to buy into this ritual, but you can come to know a way of life. And what Jesus says, my kingdom is not about ritual cleansing, but my kingdom is an invitation to a table that is overflowing with abundance. You and I cannot perform enough rituals in our life to make our life right. We cannot do it. And that's what Jesus is trying to say in this one miraculous event. But we can let him do it. We can do what those did who gathered there. We can do what he said. When Mary looked at those who were to serve, she just said, do what he tells you. But for many of us, we run to the places that we think will bring us life or fill us. And what we find is they don't. And we keep going back to them over and over and over again. They don't fill us. They don't make us right. And we wish they would. So just this week, um, I, by the way, I, I'm not someone who like buys into dreams. I think dreams are weird. I don't think they make any sense. Um, most of the time, my dreams make zero sense. In fact, here was one of my dreams this week. Um, I'm telling you two dreams. Um, the first one was this. I woke up, and here's what I knew in the dream. Pastor Hal and I were fighting bad people. I don't know why they're bad people. They just were bad people. Um, because we saw people being cut by samurai swords by ninjas. So, right? Um, and we were trying to convince them that we need to help those people, and eventually the bad people came and helped us with those people. I, yeah, that's it. I guess weird, weird dream. Like, you're like, did you eat something weird? I don't think so. I watched an episode of The Crown before I went to bed. Like, I don't know, it's pretty slow for me thinking about samurai swords, but who knows, right? Um, so that was my, my dream. But the second one, uh, many of you know I don't sleep well. I'm up lots during the night, and that's a pretty common thing for me. Um, sometimes I go to the bathroom, sometimes I just don't sleep well, but this week it wasn't for the bathroom. And I woke up. 
And I've kind of been wrestling with some things in my prayer time about like feelings of discontent and wondering what's next and feeling inadequate. And so as I've just kind of been praying through those things these last several weeks, um, I woke up in the night and I I would say with 100% certainty, the Spirit of God said to me in some way, shape, or form, just two words, pursue Jesus. And it was an answer to so many things I've been praying about and thinking about and wrestling with. It was just two words, pursue Jesus. And I started thinking how, man, how easy is it for us to miss some of those things? And I um, was thinking how God wants to answer our prayers, not always in the timing in which we desire and the way that we hope for, but he doesn't want us to live with shame. He doesn't want us to carry things, the idea that we have to keep trying to figure it out ourselves and keep going and try to fill our life over and over again. But I kept coming back to this one line in the text today, on the third day. It was on the third day that Jesus was resurrected. It was on the third day that you and I were invited in to have new life. It was on the third day in which we were invited to live as if God's kingdom was here now and not just to come. It was on the third day that he says, you can have life that can only come through me. It was on the third day that he said, you can pass from life to life and death never really even has to enter in. On the third day. I see what I have come to believe is I believe you and I are invited to know Jesus in such a way that we don't have to carry our shame or our past or our baggage that we can let it go. We don't have to keep trying to earn our way into his kingdom, but he can say, just trust that there's not enough rituals in the world for you to do to be made right with me. What he says to us is this, I'm a God of abundance, not a God of scarcity, and there's more than enough of my grace and my love for you. There is more than enough. And so the challenge and the invitation for you and I is this today, to pursue Jesus and to find life. To pursue Jesus and to find life. What are you and I pursuing? Father, we thank you for the way in which you love us, the way in which you call us to be your unique people in the world. We ask that you would help us to find that you are more than enough. That you'd help us recognize that you are a God of abundance and no matter what we think we can earn on our own, that you have more than we ever could have asked or imagined and you have it on offer, on gift to us. So we pray today that you would help us to be the unique people you have called us to be. If we're carrying shame or guilt, may we recognize the first miracle you, you performed was help a family not to feel shame. And even today, you want us to not let shame be what guides or directs our life. That you are more than enough for all of us. So Father, help us to find our life in that. We pray all this in Jesus' name.